We're continuing in the uh, book of Matthew this morning. So if you turn over to Matthew chapter 4, we're closing out Matthew chapter 4, and we're about to begin the Beatitudes in the coming weeks. So you can be reading up on chapter 5. And just let you know we have uh, small groups that meet throughout the week, one on Wednesday night, one on Friday night, and all the information is there in the, the folder. And uh, we basically uh, apply the message that was taught the Sunday before and have some fellowship and... and um, get to know each other a little bit better. And uh, we've been having a real blessing in, in our groups and uh, just, uh, um, you know, you get to know somebody on a different level when you meet with them in a, in a smaller group and that's what we're uh, looking forward to as God uh, works that out. And if you're not part of a small group, they're, they're still open at this point, so feel free to inquire. And, and uh, right now we just have two Wednesday and Friday, but uh, we're not opposed to starting another one if we get enough people, so. This morning we read out of, out of the Gospel of John, and, and one thing that I wanted to kind of bring across this morning is we want to look at three elements of Jesus' ministry. Um, three basic things that were very essential to his uh, ministry while he was here on earth. And one of the ways in which Jesus demonstrated that he was God was obviously through the different miracles of healing that he did. And they kind of served as his credentials, you might say. He said he was the Son of God, and, and so he taught and, and healed people and, and did various things that caused people to step back and go, wow, you know, the ordinary man couldn't do this. There must be something special about this person. Um, John, in particular, was kind of the, the Gospel of John, and, and the writer there was particular about getting that across because he talks a lot about the miracles and even in John 20 verses 30 and 31 he says many other signs therefore Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book so we don't have all the details of what Jesus did while he was here on earth we just have some of it but he says but these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God and that believing you may have life in his name see that's a very essential thing to understand that Jesus is God. He's the Son of God. Um, Matthew also kind of confirms that and, and basically speaks of through the mighty works and, and through his teachings and his miracles and everything that Jesus is exactly who he said he was, the Messiah, the coming King. And that's how the Gospel of Matthew is kind of uh, bringing Christ across as the, the King. And uh, the one thing that is, is kind of important to understand is that if he wasn't God, none of this would matter. Do you understand that? None of it. We wouldn't even be here if Jesus wasn't God. There'd be no reason for us to be here if Jesus wasn't God. And all the, the Gospels basically do, their, their sole mission is to present Jesus as the Messiah, as Lord and Savior, as God, the very Son of God. And apart from that, if you're, if you're sitting here this morning and say, well, I don't believe Jesus is God, well, I don't have anything else for you. There's nothing else for you to give. If, if you can't get by that, that you understand that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, there's nothing else. There's nobody that died for your sins other than Jesus. But if you don't believe Jesus was God, well, who cares? So it's a very essential thing that we understand in Christianity. And so what he said, if, he, if we believe that Jesus was God, what he said was the what? It was the Word of God. What he spoke, the words he spoke, were not just idle words. They were the very words of the living God. And everything that he did that's contained in the, in the Gospels, as we read them in, in different parts of Scripture, gives us details about what Jesus did while he was here on earth. All the works that he did, everything he did was the work of God. There was nothing Jesus Christ ever did that was his own work. Because he was God. And as we read this morning, he said, He who believes in me, you have to believe in the one who sent me. And what he's saying is, I'm God just as much as God the Father is God. And a lot of times when he would say things like that, people were astounded. They couldn't understand it. Especially the Pharisees of the day. It's because Jesus' claims were so far out in their mindset that they suggested even in one occasion that he was demon-possessed. Or that he may have been even insane. That's how far out they thought he was. But others were wiser. In John 10, 19-21, it says, These are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? So they had a problem with what Jesus was saying and what he was doing. He was doing these miraculous things, and yet the words he spoke were just kind of a stumbling block in the mind of the Pharisee of the day. 
Even the man who was healed of blindness in, in John 9, he says, well, here is an amazing thing. Here's what this guy said. He was healed. He says, you don't know where he, this guy's coming from, speaking of Jesus, but he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears them. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. That's a first-hand account of somebody who was healed of their blindness. But his works and his words were all amazing. Even in John 7, 46, the Pharisees themselves, the chief priests, they said, never did a man speak the way this man speaks. He just blew him away every time he opened his mouth. At the end of the uh, Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew chapter 7, it says, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority, not as their own scribes. They weren't used to that. Their scribes had no authority because they denied everything that they believed in, basically. So they had no authority to base their teaching on. And Jesus was, came on the scene and all of a sudden he kind of overwhelmed them every time he opened his mouth. And in Matthew chapter 4, we kind of saw already in, in the previous messages that Jesus came in Matthew 12, 17, we talked about, He came at the right time, at the right place, with the right message. It was all designed by God. It wasn't just like He woke up one day and said, Ah, I think I'll just start a ministry. That sounds good. I'm 30 and not doing much, so you know, getting tired of the carpentry stuff. So I think I'll start a ministry. That sounds... No, it was all the plan of God from the very beginning, even before that. And last week we looked at verses 18 to 22 where He chose the right partners. He chose people to work with Him. You know what? We're one of those people that he chooses to work with him. God doesn't save us to be spectators in a pew every week and, and sit here and just say, oh, okay, well, I hope the pastor has a good message. I hope the songs are good and, and you know, hope it gets me through this next week. That's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is about following in the footsteps of Christ. And when you follow in the footsteps of Christ, Jesus did a little bit more than just go to the synagogue once a week. He was out ministering. He was fellowshipping. He was dealing with the people that he chose to, to raise them up. He spent time with them. Well, this morning we look at the right plan that he has, because that's what it is. This right plan that Jesus had was from the Father, and it contains three elements. And his, his goal here is to establish that he is who he said he was, establish his deity, to establish him by his words and also by his works. Look at there in... In Matthew 4.23, it says, And Jesus was going about in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues. He was going about. What's that mean? Is he just out there wandering around? It's actually in the, in the original language, it's in the imperfect tense, which means it's a repeated and continuous action. This is something that was in Jesus' very fiber. that He could not just sit there and do nothing. He was constantly going about in all of Galilee. And it kind of summarizes his ministry there in the Galilee area. And if you look at the, the, the next couple chapters in Matthew, basically chapters 5 through 9 give us the details about what he did while he was in Galilee. And we're going to be looking at that in the coming weeks. In verses 5 to 7, it talks about the words he spoke. The Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be looking at that in detail. And then in chapters 8 through 9, it talks about all the works that he did in Galilee. So you can kind of break it down that way as we head into that, just kind of give you a little bit of direction. But when he says he's going about in Galilee, it doesn't mean that he visited every single person, every village. But it emphasized that he ministered throughout the area. And that area is not that big. It's 60 by 30 miles. So it's, it's not a huge, huge area. And so as Jesus moved about, if you wanted to get near Jesus, if you wanted to hear and be part of his ministry, you wouldn't have to travel too far. So he was available to a lot of different people. We talked about earlier that this area, Galilee, was known as the Galilee of the Gentiles in the, in the Jewish mind. It was just looked as, a, you know, all those Gentiles are just, ugh. And yet Jesus started his ministry right there. And we see here that it says that he went about through all Galilee. And what did he do? He was teaching where? It says in the what? In the synagogues, right? He was teaching in the synagogues. Now that's kind of interesting in that this area was known as the Galilee of the Gentiles. 
So there was still some form of Jewish population there. Uh, it's interesting, when you think of synagogues, there's a synagogue right down here in Alameda de los Plugas, down a couple blocks. And I don't know what comes into your mind when you think of a synagogue, but basically synagogues, they believe, developed during the Babylonian exile. When they were in exile in, in, in Babylon, and, and, and all that that happened back then, basically during the intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testament, their influence kind of expanded, you might say. Because before the synagogue, they had the what? The temple, right? Well, you couldn't always get to the temple. If you were, you know, poor or whatever, you couldn't always travel to Jerusalem where the temple was at the time and, and you know, be expected to be there and everything. So they, they started having synagogues, which made sense. And the synagogue basically was the central area of the life of a, of a Jewish person. Kind of like the church should be for the Christian. And basically these synagogues popped up all over, everywhere, in Israel and even beyond Israel. And all the religious, Jewish religious and social life centered around that. That's the way it used to be in the church. If you were a Christian, your life centered around the church in America. That's just the way it was. You know, and, and, and it's funny that we've come so far that, you know, rather than be the hub of society, the church now is maybe it's lucky to be one of the little spokes on the wheel somewhere. You know, maybe we can fit it into our schedule. Sad, but that's the truth. But these synagogues basically were established everywhere, and they were for a place of worship. They were for a place of study. They were used them for a place of community fellowship and even for legal activity. They even took care of some legal squabbles within the synagogue, within the synagogue itself. And the greatest tragedy that could befall someone of the Jewish faith was to be what they called the synagogue, be kicked out of the synagogue for whatever reason. They took that very seriously. That's why in the book of Hebrews, when you read about these, these Jews who were kind of grappling with the gospel... And they were constantly going back into their Jewish life and they didn't know what to do. That's why. Because it was a very serious thing for a Jew to become a Christian. Because immediately they were ostracized from their family, from their society, from their synagogue. And that was like a, a, just a cloud over their head. And so some Jews came to faith in Christ, but they wanted to keep one foot still in the, in the Jewish faith. So they were holding on to some of the traditions and things like that. And that's addressed in, in the book of Hebrews. But it's, it's interesting to me that when you look at these synagogues, they really symbolize kind of what the church is. They really do. Most synagogues back then were built on a hill. And history tells us that when they built, got done building the synagogue, they would put a big like pole on the roof pointing upward, kind of like a steeple. Why? So when someone of the Jewish faith came into that town, they could look up and, oh, there it is. They just knew exactly where it was. It's interesting, there was somebody who, I don't know if they're still coming to our church or came to our church, I remember talking to somebody one time and I asked them, how did, I think it was Keaton Dudley, how, how they came to this church and they said, well, they were somewhere and they saw the steeple. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that's weird. I don't know who that was, but it, that was an interesting story because I thought, you know, I always wondered, why did they put the pointy thing up there anyway, you know? Um, I know the pigeons don't like it or whatever, that thing's pretty sharp. But, you know, the synagogues did much the same thing. And also, they were, they, were, they were in most towns that had at least ten Jewish believers. They would have a synagogue. And every Sabbath day, which would be on Saturday, they would hold worship. And the worship, basically, the Sabbath would begin at sundown on Friday and end at sundown on Saturday. And they also had special services, feasts, and fellowship times, and festivals, and everything on the second fifth days of, of every of, uh, the, the month and week and different things like that. And so it was kind of a, a hub of their religious society. Now, I said that they could take care of some legal activity, okay? And they could basically handle anything legally within the synagogue itself, which is kind of interesting. The Romans allowed them to do that. There's only one thing that they couldn't do. The one thing they could not do was execute somebody. That's the only thing they couldn't do. They could take care of all the other legal things. The Romans said, hey, go ahead, handle it with all your traditions and all that stuff. You just can't basically put someone to death. That's why, you remember, when the, when the Jewish leaders needed to put Pilate, or needed to put Jesus to death, what did they have to do? They had to go to Pilate to get his permission to crucify Jesus because they weren't allowed to 
carry out a death sentence. But over and over again, we see that these synagogues were much like churches and that sometimes they would have a guest speaker. A couple of weeks ago, we had Ken Needham come and speak and he, he filled the pulpit here and, and, and preached and it, it was a real blessing. Well, it wasn't that much different back then. If you had a, somebody come and visit your synagogue, basically they were allowed to stand up and expound the scripture as a guest. It was kind of a guest of honor kind of a thing. And Jesus did that. Paul took advantage of that also on various occasions. And so it's much like the church is today. As a matter of fact, they even had kind of a form of membership within the synagogues. Because if you could be kicked out of the synagogue, well, then you had to belong to a synagogue. So it was kind of an important thing for them to understand who was part of the body. You know, and sometimes people don't get the idea of church membership and everything, and well, I've never heard of that before, and that's fine. Okay, but we really believe that it's a biblical thing. Throughout the book of Acts and everything, you constantly see them numbering the people. They're constantly, you have to know who is part of your body. And it's not a legalistic thing with us. We don't feel that we're the only church on the block, and we don't feel that you have to, you know, put your membership here, you can't walk through the door. We're not that way at all. Matter of fact, we're rather low-key about it. But we do feel that it's a sign of commitment to the local church, much as it was in even their day with synagogues. And so these synagogues of Galilee provided Jesus for his first platform of teaching. And in almost any community, there would be a synagogue. And when he would visit, he was always asked to stand up and, and kind of expound the scripture, to teach the scripture. Now, it's interesting because that word teach there, okay, refers to the passing on of information. Passing of information from one person to another. And it's not always the case, but usually in, in the original language, this word especially, a lot of times this kind of passing on of information would take place in a formal setting. It wouldn't be something where, you know, you just kind of mosey on up and, oh, you know, I got something to do, you know, and it wouldn't be that way in the synagogue. It would be a very formal thing. And when the visitor came, they would ask him formally and he would accept formally. And then, the, you know, there was a whole kind of a thing that went on within the synagogue that you'd know that this is the person that's going to teach. And it focused on the content of their scripture. And it was really important for them to understand what the scripture was saying. And really, that's not too much different than what the church is today. We're here this morning, hopefully, for the purpose of discovering the truth in God's word. Um, you know, and that was, in that day, it was different in the, in the forms of the Greeks. They would all come together and someone would say something and they'd sit around, well, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? It wasn't formal at all. It was very informal, but it was just kind of a a big dialogue. Everybody shared and nobody was ever right, wrong, and everybody was right, and you could share whatever you want. Because they're, they were into all kinds of philosophies and everything, so it was kind of interesting to hear them uh, you know, discuss these things. Because everybody could just kind of expound on whatever they wanted. Well, in the synagogue it wasn't that way. It was very direct. When a person got up to teach, he always taught from the scripture. He didn't get up and teach from, you know, uh, five ways to have a happy family or something. It was always from God's word. And that's one thing that today a lot of churches, unfortunately, are, are, are missing. And, and we want to make sure that we're always in a text of Scripture. Not that we don't teach topically occasionally. We do. But usually we're going through a book of the Bible. Because I feel that, you know what, that's, that's the best way to do it. It covers everything that's in there. And, and you're not getting up on your hobby horse and preaching to people, whatever. You're just kind of explaining what the text is saying and how to apply it to our lives. So that's basically what it was. It was basically expository in nature. And today in our churches, I believe it should be the same. So that was the teaching aspect of Jesus' ministry. Well, he also, it says that in proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, preaching, in other words, preaching the gospel, the idea there is to herald something out, to cry something out. You know, we've heard of the town crier, you know, the guy that runs through the town and yells whatever news is, is that needs to happen. All right? Well, this is kind of the form of that. And it, it, in relation to teaching, teaching is basically explaining the message of Scripture. That's what teaching is, okay? Preaching or proclaiming it is, 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 is basically heralding the message of Scripture, Simply announcing it. There's not a lot of teaching done 
in the aspect of preaching. Now, a lot of times people will teach and preach. You're, you're doing both. You're teaching what the Scripture says, but you're also heralding the announcement of the Gospel. And so, when they would interpret the Old Testament, Jesus, in his teaching, he'd also proclaim the Gospel of the Kingdom. That's what it says there. It says, preaching the Gospel of the Kingdom. The Gospel means what? Good news. It's the good news that the Kingdom was coming. And that's the, the news that Jesus preached throughout all Galilee. And he really continued to do what John the Baptist had already begun. He proclaimed the kingdom, but he didn't proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. John the Baptist's message was different. He was, he was a faithful messenger of that message, but the good news of Jesus Christ was the gospel of the kingdom. See, John's message called men to what? Repent of their sins, to prepare themselves for the coming king. Uh, Matthew 3, 1-10. He focused on what? He focused on sin. He focused on judgment. Basically, he was the bad news that, that led people up to the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, I, in investigation, sometimes you have this thing they call good cop, good cop, bad cop. You get somebody in a room and the guy comes, oh, you need some water or whatever. And I've seen this work. I mean, it just works. And, oh, yeah, you know, okay. And then, you know, they won't talk to that guy, so the next guy comes in. Next investigator sits down with him, and basically, he's the bad guy. <laughs> you know, takes the water away, takes cigarettes away, and just kind of, whatever. Well, eventually, it gets back to the good guy, and the guy's a little more kind of worked up to talk, because he doesn't want the bad guy to come back in. Well, that's kind of what it was like with John the Baptist and Jesus. John the Baptist kind of prepared people for the good news of the gospel of the kingdom. John the Baptist just said the, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. And so his preaching became more and more uh, stern, Jesus did, as it went on. He, he pointed out that people were hypocrites. And even on occasion, they became violent against him. And there was occasions when Christ had to kind of escape for his life. But the king's first proclamation was good news. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says that he could deliver us from the domain of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. That's the good news of the gospel. The gospel is that we can have salvation through Jesus Christ. The good news is that God's kingdom, that, that sphere of God's rule, is open to anyone who puts their trust in the king. Kind of makes sense. If you have a kingdom, then you're going to have to be loyal to the king of that kingdom, who is Jesus Christ. And so the Jews were under the, the rule of Rome at the time. And before that, they'd been under the, the Greeks and the Medes and the Persians and all sorts of people, Babylonians. And see, they really wanted their own king. And so Christ came on the, 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 the kind of the the land there and said, hey, I'm the king, I'm the king, you know, and they rejected him. They rejected their own Messiah. If they would have, I really believe that they would have believed that Jesus was who he said he was, and they would have accepted him as the Messiah, his kingdom literally would have come to earth at that time. But it didn't happen. It wasn't in the cards. So they rejected the king, and they also rejected his gospel. They rejected the earthly promised kingdom. And so when he spoke, he spoke powerful words. He spoke eternal words like nobody else has ever spoken. And so his teaching was right on. His preaching was right on. Even people in his hometown of Nazareth were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which, fallen, which were fallen from his lips. When he went down to Capernaum, it says, they said they were amazed at his teaching for his message was with authority. Even his cleverest enemies could never trap him in his own words or confuse him or confound him. I mean, he was God. How could you do that, right? But they didn't believe that. So they were always trying to trick him. And his preaching and his teaching was about the kingdom. And they were really elements of his ministry. Well, there's a third element of his ministry. In, in John 20, or John, or Matthew 4, 23, 
At the end there it says, and healing all kinds of sickness, all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went out throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. See, we have to stop and we have to realize that some people are sick and unhealthy because they have foolish habits. They don't take care of the temple that God entrusted to them. Um, others suffer as a direct result, as a consequence of their sin. Sickness happens to a variety of people for a variety of reasons. God even sometimes uses physical affliction to discipline his people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says many of the Corinthian Christians were weak and they were sick and even had died because they basically abused the Lord's Supper. Remember Ananias and Sapphira lost their lives for lying to the Holy Spirit. And yet, Scripture makes it clear that all suffering disease are not caused by sin. See, sometimes we fall into that default. When you find out somebody's sick, you know, immediately we think, oh, I wonder what they're doing in their spare time. There's something wrong with them. God made them sick. Well, that may not be the case. Suffering and disease are not all caused by sin, ignorance, errors in judgment, or God's discipline. Job, you think about Job, he suffered greatly. That he was blameless, the Bible says. He was upright, he feared God, and he turned away from evil. So when Jesus' disciples assumed that a man who was born blind was, was being punished, remember that text in John 9? either by his own sin or by the, his parents' sin, Jesus corrected them. He says, it's neither by this man's sin nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. When's the last time you heard that? At a faith healer's message. When's the last time you heard that at one of these rallies they do on TV? Where the people come forward to an individual and they're healed supernaturally, supposedly. You don't hear that. I think some people are sick because God wants them to be sick. He has a purpose. He wants to carry that purpose out. That His glory, that the works of God might be displayed in their life. That's a hard pill to swallow sometimes. But you know what? We have folks even in our own congregation that can testify to that. There's people that are in our own congregation that, that were sick even maybe to the point of death. And God spared them. And you ask them, would you go back and remove that from your life? And they'd say, no way. I'd do it all over again. Because God did a work in my heart. See, Jesus' healing ministry was a divine verification that He was who He said He was. His words should have been sufficient, obviously, that He was the Messiah because He was God. But they weren't. They were, for those who truly believe, think about the disciples. We just talked about them a couple weeks ago, how they left everything to follow Jesus. Did Jesus perform any miracle at that point? No. Simply His Word was good enough for them. Many heard Him and believed in Him who had no need of healing for themselves or for any family or friends. It's possible that many who heard and believed in Christ never even saw Him perform a miracle at all just as many believe John the Baptist's message, although John performed no signs at all. Yet Jesus' healing ministry was this powerful addition to the evidence of His teaching and preaching. You have His teaching and preaching, which totally blew people away, and now you add in the element of His healing ministry. Incredible. And these, these miracles that He did, it was always to glorify his father to verify who he said he was it says there that Jesus healed every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people it goes on and it kind of lists them out there for us in that day Syria was a Roman province that basically took in all of Palestine which included Galilee 
And here he may just be talking about the northern part near Damascus. But in any event, from a wide surrounding area, people brought these folks, these sick people, to Jesus in hope that he would heal them. Now you stop and think back then. Plagues were rampant. All sorts of things went, went wrong back then medically. They didn't have the, the care that we have today. It's strange back then that the news of a healer could cure any affliction. And when people heard that, man, it spread like wildfire. It says that various diseases and pains, and he mentions three of them there, basically. The diseases kind of refers to maladies, different kinds of diseases. Uh, the pains refer to the symptoms of those diseases. The first one that people suffered were from being demon-possessed. It says those who were demon-possessed. Those who had afflictions that were caused by demons. It's clear from the New Testament that a lot of physical and mental afflictions are caused directly by Satan through the operation of his demons. You can see that throughout Scripture. The ability to cast out demons is often referred to as the gift of, of miracles, literally powers in, in 1 Corinthians 12.10. The divine power given specifically to combat the demonic powers of darkness. There are people that suffer from that. There's people that suffer from that today. The second group were epileptics. The original language refers to someone as this is just what it means, lunatic, someone who is moonstruck, it says. And a lot of times, many cultures, the mentally ill people, those who have convulsions and seizures, they, they were thought to have some kind of, be under some spell from the moon. That's just what they thought. But Jesus was able to heal those folks. The third group were the paralytics, those who were basically a wide range of crippling effects on different people. And it really encompasses a broad area of man's afflictions. It encompasses everything. Physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. And Jesus was able to deal with it all. He was able to overcome whatever evil afflicted those who came to Him. In Isaiah 29, it says, On that day the deaf shall hear, the eyes of the blind shall see, the afflicted shall also increase their gladness in the Lord, and the needy of mankind shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Well, who is that? That's Jesus Christ. They brought to him all who were ill, and it says he healed them. These miracles basically accomplished four things. First of all, they proved that he was divine, because no human being could do such things. John 14:11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Jesus told Philip, otherwise believe on account of the works themselves. You can believe my words or you can believe my works. Either way, it's something that's happening here that's divine. Secondly, these, these wondrous healings show that God is compassionate toward those who suffer. See, in the, in the, the day of the mind, that wasn't the way it was. God was kind of, you know, looked as a harsh person, not somebody who would have pity on somebody who was crippled. The miracles showed that Jesus was the prophesied Messiah because the Old Testament predicted that Messiah would perform miracles. When John the Baptist was in prison and began to have doubts about Jesus' Messiahship, Jesus told John's disciples, go and report to John what? What you hear and see. Well, what is that, John? What are, we, or what are we supposed to tell John? That the blind receive sight and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Matthew 11, 4-5. He wanted to encourage his brother John the Baptist who was in prison. That, hey, I am the real deal. I am who I said I was. I am the Messiah. And here's why. Miracles also proved that the coming kingdom was a reality. That it wasn't some figment of somebody's imagination. These wonders and signs kind of were a foretaste of this marvelous place that God had in store. Matthew 9 says, And Jesus was going about in all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of sickness. 
A short while later, Jesus committed that same message to his disciples and the same powers to his disciples in Matthew 10. He says, as you go preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, freely you received, freely give. And after that, he pointed out the disbelieving Pharisees. Those who were pointing to Jesus and saying, oh, I think he's doing this you know, by some kind of a satanic work. He says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. I can only do this by the Spirit of God. I am who I am. I am the Son of God. I'm Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And over and over again, we see this in Scripture. And it was to demonstrate His absolute power and authority. Jesus healed everyone who came to Him during His earthly ministry. And He did it without exception, without limit. And I'm here to tell you today that He still has the power to heal today. He really does. With absoluteness and completeness. As He sovereignly chooses to do so. But He does not promise to heal everyone who asks Him. That's not in Scripture anywhere. Not even to those who are His children. That's why sometimes it's kind of tough. You go into a hospital room and dealing with somebody who's sick and they ask you to pray for healing. My first thing that pops in my head is, is it God's will for this man to be healed? I don't, I don't want to pray something that's in contrary to God's will. You say, well, why wouldn't it be? For the very purpose we just talked about. Sometimes it's not in God's will for someone to be healed. Sometimes it's within God's will for that person to go home to glory. Sometimes it's within God's will for that person to, to be brought to a point of despair that they trust in Christ. We don't know what the purpose of God is in all this. But just because somebody's sick doesn't mean that we just have to demand God to heal them. Because that may not be His will. But then again, it may. So how do you pray? I always pray, God, let your sovereign will be done. If it's your will for this individual to get up and walk out of this hospital right now, do it. If it's not, give them the grace to deal with the suffering. But he always healed. Jesus healed without exception and without limit. But he doesn't promise to heal everyone today. See, the miracles he performed while he was on earth were different than any miracles ever, even today. And you may be of a theological bent that doesn't believe that, but I really believe that, that the miracles that Jesus and the, the disciples performed were for that day. Can God perform miracles today? Sure he can. But let me point out six features of this divine healing that Jesus had that have never been duplicated since the New Testament time. First of all, Jesus healed directly. He healed directly with a word or a touch. He healed without prayer. And sometimes even without being near the afflicted person, He just spoke and it was done. But He healed them directly. Secondly, Jesus healed instantaneously. There was no waiting of restoration for something to happen later. It wasn't like, come back next week, you know, to my rally next week, I'll be here in the big tent, and, you know, see, and then you can stand up and testify how God... No, it was instantaneous. Everyone that Jesus healed was instantaneous, and it was complete. That's the third thing. He healed completely, never partially. You know, if someone went to, to Jesus with a, a, a sore foot, and they didn't mention the sore hand, well, he healed that too. They were whole, they were complete. Fourthly, he healed everyone who came to him. You don't see that today. I've seen people, I've heard people, I've read testimony, testimony, testimony. You know, people go to these rally things. Benny Hinn is one individual that just does this kind of carnival atmosphere. But I've heard people that go to Benny Hinn's things. 
They go there in a wheelchair and they leave in a wheelchair. And they're disillusioned. They're even questioning their faith. Why? Because they think that somehow this individual has some kind of supernatural power to do something that really he has no power to do anything. Jesus wasn't that way. He healed everyone who came to him. Everyone who was brought to him. Everyone for whom healing was asked by another. He healed without discrimination as to the person or to the affliction. It didn't matter. Jesus just healed it. He also healed both organic and congenital problems. No matter how severe they were or how long-standing they were, it didn't matter. He just spoke the word and it was done. The last interesting thing about Jesus' healing ministry was what, that he brought people back to life. <laughs> he raised people from the dead. He healed even after disease had run its full course and taken the life of its victim. See, wouldn't you think that common logic would say if that kind of ministry was going on today, if somebody purported to have that kind of ministry, and one of your loved ones died, what would you do? I would take them to the, the tent. Hey, I got another one for you. Raise this one up. That's what I would do. If you were diagnosed with a Severe disease? I mean, why go to the doctors? Why would you go to a doctor? If, if there's a faith healer that can just zap you with his hand, then you're healed. That's what you would do. See, the sad thing is, is people are saying they have that power. They're saying that God gives them that power. But I really believe they're, they're false. Because 201, you can look at their bank account. You can look at their mansions they have all over the place. You can look at their cars and their boats. And what it boils down to is what you put in the little bucket. Because they're, they're greedy people. They're in love with money. And they're willing to sacrifice the cause of Christ on the altar of what they want. The success that they want. I don't see many faith healers out there today that are poor, like Jesus was poor. Didn't have a roof over his head. It's just quietly going out, ministering, healing people. I don't see that. See, those six features that we just talked about characterize the healing ministry of Jesus and his apostles. At the beginning of the book of Acts, we're told that many miracles and signs happened that the, and the apostles performed them. We see that. We saw that when we went through the book of Acts. Yet at the end of the book, the accounts of miracles virtually cease. They cease. And you can say the same for the epistles. Even early in Paul's ministry, he performed many miracles of healing. Paul himself did. But years later, when Timothy said, ah, you know, i got this stomach flu kind of thing going on. Did Paul just simply say, hey, you're healed? No. What did he say? Hey, you know, you want to take some wine for that. That'll help you out. <laughs> Can't help you beyond that. Sorry. At the end of his next letter to Timothy, the apostle reports that Trophimus, I left sick at Miletus. He left somebody sick, something Jesus never did. When someone met Jesus and they requested healing, it was done. Well, Paul left someone sick, apparently beyond the power of Paul to help at that point. And yet, at one time, he was able to. See, there's no scriptural evidence, beloved, by the end of the apostolic age that miracles of any sort were still being performed. You can disagree, that's fine. But once Israel had turned her back on the Messiah, her divine king, the authenticating signs of the kingdom, there was no more purpose to them. That's why they were given, to authenticate who Christ was. And all of a sudden you see them fade and they disappear altogether. 
great multitudes followed him, it says there. For no doubt they came for reasons besides healing for themselves and others. A lot of them came to hear him teach, to hear him preach. Some of them came out of curiosity. But you know what? It's not that God doesn't heal today. He does. He still has the power. Jesus is the same today, yesterday, forever. That's right. But he doesn't necessarily work in the same way. And we have to stop and we have to realize, how does this affect us? How do these three things, this teaching and preaching and healing ministry, what, what does that leave for us? Last week, Ken read a little story about a little club that kind of was on the shoreline to, to warn the, the ships of the, save the, the, uh, the sailors that, after their boat wrecked, and the little kind of thing turned into a club, and pretty soon they weren't even allowing the sick and the, the lame to come in anymore. They, it was too exclusive. You know, we need to get back to the basics of ministry, teaching, preaching, healing people. Maybe not in a divine way, but in a way that only God can. Healing of the heart. The three things that make up our mission in life is, first of all, we need to be able to change lives. Our mission is to change lives. That's what Jesus said. He said, follow me and I'll make you what? Fishers of fish? No, fishers of men. What did he mean? You're going to change some people's lives. Instead of doing something temporary with your life, he was telling those fishermen, do something eternal. Do something that has an eternal impact. I like this illustration when Steve Jobs, co-founder of Apple Computer, offered the position of Apple CEO to Ch uh, Pepsi chairman John Scully, John Scully said, I'm not interested. I don't, I don't want any part of it. He said he was satisfied with his work at Pepsi. Jobs looked at Scully in the eye and he said this, Are you telling me that you would rather sell sugared water for the rest of your life when you could lead a company that would change the world? He slowly made the decision to leave Pepsi and he went to work for Apple Computer because he probably never heard it put in that perspective before. See, I don't want us just to be out there satisfied to sell somebody sugar and water. We have to realize that we have a life-giving message of the gospel that actually changes lives. And we need to share it. We need to become fishers of men. Secondly, our mission is to heal the hurting. Jesus said that he went out throughout all Galilee, healed every disease, every sickness. And they brought people to him. And like I said, there's a healing that happens in the heart when you share the gospel with someone. If you're here today and you're saved, you understand what that is. If you're not, I'll tell you, the Bible says that your heart is sick. <laughs> your heart is black. Your heart is sinful. It's deceitful. It needs healing. And only God can provide that. Thirdly, our mission is to teach the Word of God. Not just a pastor, not just the elders. Every Christian is called upon to teach and preach the Word of God. The Bible says that we're, we're commanded to go into all the world. Okay? And we have to begin to realize that the Word of God is what? It's living. It's active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates, dividing of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Don't go out there and teach and preach your own message. Go out there and teach and preach the Word of God. See, sometimes the church doesn't take seriously its commitment to the Word of God. Sometimes we think it's just something that we memorize or whatever. Believe me, there's power in the Word of God. If you're going to share something with someone... I mean, say someone was going to die within an hour and you had one thing to share with them, what would it be? I trust, as a Christian, it would be the Word of God, that you would open up the Word of God and begin to read it and, and teach it to them. Because it has the ability to save their soul. We need to remember those things. We need to stop and we need to say, you know what, we don't want to become just a, a life-saving station that turned into a kind of a country social club but we want to allow ourselves to be used by God to reach out into this community that He's placed us in and to minister on His behalf to all those 
who have yet to hear the gospel message. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I pray that this would not fall on just deaf ears. Lord, that we would take seriously our commitment as believers. Lord, we're not here by accident today. You knew each one of us was going to be here. And you've arranged it to be so because you're a sovereign God. And Lord, I pray that as we look at this next week, we'll ask ourselves, are we fulfilling the ministries that Christ has called us to? And I, and I pray that we wouldn't fall under the delusion that it happens in these four walls. Very little ministry really should happen within these four walls. It should happen out there where the ministry needs to take place. We gather here on Sunday to equip ourselves, to build ourselves up, to focus our hearts and our minds on you. And Lord, we ask that you would minister to us and through us this next week, Lord, in the workplace. Each one of us will go somewhere where probably no one else will go this week. A certain building, a certain office, a certain family, a certain coffee shop. And Lord, there's people there who are lost, who need to hear the gospel of Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be creative in our approach. That we would be passionate about the message of Christ. If there's someone here today who's yet to hear, yet to commit their lives to Christ, I, I want them to understand it's as simply as crying out to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, reveal yourself to me in a way that you've never done before. Show me my need for you. Help me to repent of my sin, to turn away from my sin and turn to you, to trust you fully for my salvation. That's a prayer God will answer. He'll make it happen even today. You just yield your heart to Him. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Father, we thank You and we praise You in Jesus' name. Amen.